turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. We're going to be looking at um, basically verses uh, 13 through 34. 9, 13 through, through 34. We're, we're not going to read it not right at the moment, um, but uh, we'll, we'll be coming back to it this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We, we do thank you for uh, your love, the love that is shown in, in Jesus. And we're thankful, Father, that you've called us out of darkness into your glorious light, that you have uh, given uh, those of us who have confessed that we are blind, you've given us sight, and, and we're grateful for that. And we, we understand, Father, that, uh, that you, through Jesus, are the source of, of true vision, true sight, that we can't possess it apart from, from you. And we thank you, Father, for this. We pray that uh, today you would uh, do a great work among us, that you would build up this uh, local body, Father, to, to sing praises to you, to worship you with all of our heart, Father. We just thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 9 uh, began, as we saw last week, with Jesus leaving the temple and passing by a man born blind. Uh, we saw that Jesus' actions of giving the man his sight was interpreted by his words to his disciples that while he was in the world, he was the light of the world. We saw that this indicated that the nature of his ministry was to embody the often forgotten mission of Israel to the world, to give people the light by which they might truly see, to take the light of God's love for his creation and its people to the world, to be the city upon the hill, a light to the nations, but within the Gospel of John, and indeed within the New Testament itself, what comes, what often gets in the way of this mission is what I might, what I've termed a covenantal nationalism. That gets in the way of the mission of Israel to the world. Within first century Israel, covenant nationalism uh, was, the, was the reigning way to look at the world. We are in the covenant, and the Gentiles are not in the covenant. And ultimately, we are going to see to it that the Gentiles do not come into the covenant, that they have no part in what is given to us as Israel. What I mean by this is that it's not simply that they did that they love their country as any citizen uh, does or ought to, but that they had a covenant nationalism that understood the privileges of sonship sonship of God and of Abraham, privileges of covenant to be exclusively for themselves and no other. The privileges of sonship were to be theirs under Torah, and this is the important part, this covenant relationship was final and was not going to change. God would not act to do a new thing, though the scriptures spoke more than once of God acting again to renew this covenant and to expand it in some way to deal with the nations either in mercy or in judgment, or perhaps both. One of the central claims in John is that this is precisely what Jesus is doing and will do in his death, his giving of his life, in God giving Jesus for the very life of the world. Of course, that's not all that's going on with the hearts of the leaders, the shepherds, but it's part of it, and we'll see this in chapter 10 as it comes to us. There are also issues of corruption 
power, and control that factor into their actions towards Jesus. But from John's perspective, this covenantal nationalism is a major factor in the rejection of the Jews of their Messiah. Once we see this theme within John, it becomes more and more clear what is driving their fierce resistance to Jesus. He threatened to understand their, uh, to transform their understanding of Torah, of Moses, and of the covenant. They could not say with John, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus, the Messiah. That in Jesus and the new covenant, there was a surprising glory that had dwarfed that of Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai. The glory greatly surpassed it in Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and truth. But here's the issue. Wrapped up in this kind of nationalism is a denial of a fundamental goal of the one creator God, the God uh, to become the God of the whole world, to bring in the Gentiles, to bring in the nations into the one people of God. And when Israel rejected the goal of their God, they rejected his will for themselves and God's will for the world. And they put themselves outside of the covenant by doing so. They rejected their own calling to be the light of the world in him, in Jesus, with him as their head and they as the body. But Jesus did not reject it. And as Israel's king and representative, he was actually fulfilling it. He was carrying out this mission to be the light of the world. And his miracles, which, which we saw as signs and which John points to as signs, were pointing to the fact that this mission was being faithfully executed by Jesus, the faithful son of God. New creation, new exodus was beginning, and it had as a major component the healing of blindness, a blindness that when healed recognizes Jesus as the giver of sight. For Israel, or anyone for that matter, to become part of that new family, and indeed the new world that Jesus brings in, to be born from above and have all things become new, meant that things would change with the old. Grace and truth had arrived in Jesus, and Torah had been fulfilled, a radical fulfillment of the goal of Torah. The light of the new creation had now dawned. And in this next scene within the story of the man born blind, we will see that this fulfillment of Torah meant the fulfillment of the sign of the Sabbath. Not in the sense that formerly you couldn't do this or that on the Sabbath day, but now you can do this or that. Or even Saturday used to be the Sabbath, but now Sunday is. No, this is not it at all. And this is not what Sabbath is about, though sometimes it was made to be that. And uh, maybe even today is made to be that. But that in Jesus, the rest that was originally signaled by the Sabbath, coming as it did within the first creation, was being given to those who receive him as the light of the new creation. In fact, in fact, it seems to me here that Sabbath is actually explained in terms of the blind man receiving his sight. Or to put it another way, Sabbath is coming to its intended fulfillment. This rest that it promised may be had, and this comes through Jesus opening the eyes of the blind, of opening our blind eyes, giving true sight to the blind and blinding those who think they see, setting them outside the rest that was that their very own Sabbath day pointed to. 
Come unto me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Rest is given, given in receiving the Lord Jesus. To reject the source of the healing is to remain, so to speak, in the darkness and unable to see, remaining in sin outside of true Sabbath rest. The Sabbath had lost its signage. Let's return to our passage. In chapter 9, verse 13, we read, they brought, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I watched and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, he is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by, by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed that, in, that already that if anyone confessed Jesus was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So they called. So they again called the man who was born blind and, and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want me to, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses's disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were, from, were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. In this passage, which is quite long, and there are many things that we could say about it, we can see various themes converging. First, there's the blindness. Then there's Sabbath. Then there's Moses. Perhaps Sabbath and Moses here go together. Then there's the disagreement about the identity of Jesus, which I take to be relating to all of these. In fact, this is what John's gospel is about. Who is this Jesus? We will return to the blindness, but let's look a bit at the theme of Sabbath. As in the other Gospels, for the rulers, and especially the Pharisees, Sabbath is a measuring rod by which to measure devotion to Torah, or perhaps devotion to the authorities. 
to measure faithfulness to the Torah, to Moses. It wasn't simply that Sabbath was some kind of good work by which they might earn their salvation. Not at all. It was a sign to anyone watching that they were the covenant people of the one God. There were more of these signs, but Sabbath figures prominently within the Gospels as the covenant marker of choice that was used to convince the sheep that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. It was a tool used to get everyone to think badly of the person who had violated it. See, Jesus can't be a prophet. He must be a sinner since he violated Sabbath. See, he disobeys Moses. He can't be a prophet. In this way, the Pharisees are like modern journalists, those of our time. They determine who is acceptable, and if not, they will put you outside of the mainstream, outside of right standing within society. The Pharisees did this on a local level, and they would put you out, and you would have no recourse. They can make you appear to be outside of Moses, and therefore, whatever, you name the label. This is the kind of thing they were doing with Jesus. And Sabbath was their tool. No respectable Jew would mold play on the Sabbath and heal someone. Jesus, of course, in other places, uh, points out their hypocrisy by asking them if they would rescue one of their own animals if it were to fall into a pit on the Sabbath. They would, of course, indicating that they were indeed hypocrites. But here he doesn't argue with them about what is permitted on the Sabbath. No, here he lets the action of healing speak for itself. And then he leads the man to recognize him as first prophet and then son of God. But what do these things actually have to do with the Sabbath in the scriptures? Let's look at this for just a bit. There are a few things that we should first note about the Sabbath and how it was understood in the scriptures and by Jesus himself. First, the Sabbath is, a, is the final day of the creation week. He created and then he rested, which means that he took up his rest within the newly built temple world. Secondly, the Sabbath was a sign of rest, but it's what that rest actually means that is important. Adam himself was given it when he was caused to rest in the Garden of Eden to keep it and to serve in it. Genesis 2.15. Your translation will not read that way, but that's what the verb says. To, uh, he was put in the garden is how it will read, but it, it literally means he was caused to rest there. Genesis 2.15. He subsequently lost it, resulting in grievous toil for himself and his descendants. No longer shall you work the ground in rest, but you shall work the ground in toil and by the sweat of your brow. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Your life will be unfruitful. By the sweat of your brow you will eat bread till you return to the ground. This, of course, while real, is pointing to the fact that there has been a loss of rest the rest given to Adam that he lost through his sin of idolatry by worshiping and serving the creature. But God is restoring that rest, and this is what Genesis is about, and for that matter, the rest of the Bible. 
God is restoring that rest. And he's doing this through a descendant, namely Noah, whose very name means rest. A hint about what the future holds. Genesis 5, 28 and 29. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, this one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. But what does this rest really mean? And how can Jesus possibly be seen as its fulfillment? Does it simply mean that one day we won't have to work to make the ground produce food and that Jesus will one day make that possible? Possibly. How do the scriptures answer this question? And this is what we have to look at. I'm going to define it here and then seek to justify this definition through the story of the scriptures from Adam to Jesus. From Adam to Israel, to David, to Solomon, to Jesus. And we will see that the way that the scripture defines rest is by telling the story of Israel heading into the land, taking it by conquest and ruling the land with their enemies subdued. Let me read that again. I'm going to tell you the definition in just a minute. But the way that the scriptures define rest, Sabbath rest, is by telling the story of Israel heading into the land, taking it by conquest, and ruling in the land with their enemies subdued. Jesus then, as the very embodiment of Israel, interprets the scriptures and the conquest around himself, defining rest and thereby fulfilling it. I don't know of anywhere else to teach this, so hang in there. This is more like a more like a teaching session than it is a sermon. But uh, but it's got a, this is a, it's a very important theme that runs throughout the Pentateuch, especially, but then on into the prophets, and then of course Jesus picks it up and and says that Sabbath is fulfilled in me. This is the uh, if you if you need more information, let's talk at lunch. But uh, but uh, this is very important. This is the definition of rest. Rest is the victorious rule of the king in the land with his enemies subdued. Now, that sounds like a strange definition of rest, but we'll see how it works out in the Gospels. Or if we generalize it, we might say victorious ruling in the land with enemies subdued. Note that enemies here is intentionally undefined and has to be defined. And it is defined within John though it's easy to miss. First, we have to realize that Adam and his descendants, including Noah, then Shem, then Abraham, were royal. They were kings. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule it, and subdue it. This is the language of royalty. Rule the earth and subdue it. From Abraham, kings will come. What kind of person comes from a king? Kings. From what, what, from what kind of person does a king come? From a king, right? So royalty begets royalty, and that's what's happening throughout this story. And I think this is often, we often fail to see the, the patriarchs being depicted as royalty. I will make you a kingdom of priests, he says to, Mount, to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. As kings, it was their vocation to rule. And that meant and means even today that they were to defeat their enemies within their territories, so to speak. Like the serpent, 
the enemy in the garden, like the Canaanite in the land and the nations round about them and the idols with which they led Israel astray. Within this story, these are the enemies of Israel, and she was to defeat them by the Lord her God. As kings, it was their vocation to obtain rest and keep it. And the defeating of enemies was the means by which they would obtain this rest. This royal vocation, this royal vocation was given to Israel, the royal firstborn son of God, Exodus 4.22. The descendants of Abraham and a future rest was then promised to them. They were to be given the land, the equivalent of Adam being caused to rest in the garden. Adam was caused to rest to do his job, to do his vocation, to keep it as a priest would. And thus they, like Adam, as kings and priests, were to obtain rest. The Sabbath, then, is a sign that rest uh, of that rest that God would or wanted to give Israel as a set-apart people of the one creator God. But as for you, he says in Exodus 31, 13, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign, he says, between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who sets you apart for a purpose. It is a sign between me, this is 31.17, between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from his labor and was refreshed. We should note here simply from this, these passages that Sabbath is a sign that Israel is to be set apart as a people. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, set apart for the worship of the one true God in the tabernacle that was just commanded to be built. A sign, as I've repeat, said repeatedly, points to something beyond itself. And in this case, it points to a future rest a rest which God promises to give his people with whom he will go into the land. Exodus 33, 14, God, or his face or his presence, will go with them and give them rest. My presence, he said, shall go with you and I will give you rest. And then this rest in Deuteronomy is wedded with the idea of going into the land, receiving the land and conquering and ruling within it. Deuteronomy 12.10, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from your enemies around you so that you live in security, there it is associated with the enemies and subduing them. Deuteronomy 25.19, therefore it shall come about that the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of uh, Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. See the definition developing? Rest is dwelling in the land with their enemies subdued, whether the enemy is the serpent or the Amalekites or the Canaanites, or as in John, the great power of sin that rules through death. See also Joshua 1.15 and 23.1 and following as well, where, where rest is associated with dwelling in the land with enemies defeated. But what happens to Israel within this story? 
Does Israel get the rest and keep it that she has been given? No, as Joshua himself bears witness against them. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm. And as Hebrews says, quoting Psalm 95, 11, in Hebrews 4, 3, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they, that is the unfaithful in Israel, shall not enter my rest. Though they take the land initially, they were not able to keep the rest that God had given them. They were repeating Adam's sin, Adam's idolatry, however reshaped, and they lost the rest and were expelled from the land where their enemies subdued them. No rest for the wicked, Isaiah says. Under David, the head of Israel, Israel's king and Solomon, his son, David is given rest. Here's what it says in 1 Kings 5, 4 and 5. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. How does he define that? There is neither adversary, and the word there is Satan, hearkening back to the garden, nor misfortune. Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I set on your throne in your place, he will build a house for my name. I have been given rest, Solomon says, but what happens with this rest? Take a guess. It is lost with Solomon. The kingdom is split and greater Israel is no more. The adversaries have overcome Israel. Only Judah is left. Solomon had been subdued by his enemies. What were those enemies? Those enemies were the idols of the nations. This is important to notice. Rest is lost by idolatry. The obverse is also true. Rest is gained by true worship. Because of his wives, Solomon was building altars in high places to Kamosh and Molech, the gods that so many worship today, offering their children on the fire, on the altar of convenience and career. First Kings 11.1, 1. now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your hearts away after their gods. This was the issue. Idolatry was the issue. Solomon, Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Kamosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this very thing, that he should not go after other gods, 
but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to, to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Then the Lord raised up a Satan, an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal line of Edom. And from there, it is all downhill. And the promise of rest continuing to be held out to Israel had become mired in a long exile and seemed to be impossible to regain. And in the first century, the enemies were still ruling over Israel. Rome, they thought correctly, but only partially. The true enemy was the slavery that they were in because of their sins, because of their rejection of their messianic king, the real son of David, who would come and deliver them from their enemies. And the slavery they would re remain in would not turn to freedom until they recognized the true son of David, who would victoriously defeat their enemy. And in John, the enemy is the dark power of the evil one, sin, called in John, the ruler of this world. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. John 16 and 11 of judgment. I will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. It is this power that controls all others, including the ones the Pharisees were enslaved to through their lust for power. And it is this power that Jesus will ultimately set the blind man free from. And all who come to him will be freed from its power. For that is what sin is, a power that enslaves and blinds. Blindness is a tool of the evil one, the integral part of the darkness, which itself creates blindness as an, and is another way of talking about it. And what Jesus says, both here and elsewhere, is that as the light of the world, he is peeling back the darkness, opening blind eyes, both literally and figuratively, and he is giving what the Sabbath pointed to all along, a rest from the true enemy, which enslaves. He is bringing true freedom, that, and, and that means that sin, the enslaving power, will be defeated for good through the cross. The idols of the nations, the power that stood behind them, which were to be defeated by Israel, had now come to their time of true defeat in Jesus's ministry and through his cross. A new world would be created, a world of light and of genuine love of God and neighbor. And both humans and their environments would now be made new. Life would reign, or as Paul says, we would reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. No longer subject to the law of sin and death, but to the law of the spirit that gives life which sets us free from the law of sin resulting in death. That's what the Sabbath was promising. And we can hear it echo about in this chapter. Freedom, we saw, was freedom from sin. Freedom to life. Freedom obtained through the truth. You shall know the truth, Jesus says, and the truth will set you free. The Son is the truth, and the Son shall make you free. He will bring about that long-awaited Sabbath and rise on the first day, no less, to bring about the new day, the new creation following the Sabbath he had rested upon. I am not convinced here that the Pharisees knew any or saw all of this 
but I think they had an idea what Jesus was talking about when he was doing his works on the Sabbath, what he was doing, what he was signaling. As it said elsewhere in Matthew 11, Jesus says, speaking of himself, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, which means that he is the one that is bringing it to its climax and fulfillment, and the one who defines what that fulfillment looks like. In this current story, and in chapter 5, and in the other gospel, he defines it by his signs. He defines what true Sabbath is by the interpretation of his signs that he does. We have turned these Sabbath episodes into something they were not. Acts of Jesus condemning self-help, earn your way to heaven works. They are not that. That is not what he's doing. Neither Jesus nor the Pharisees thought this. Were the Pharisees mistaken about Sabbath and what it was all about? Yes, for sure. They had forgotten, if they had ever known it, that the Sabbath was all along given as a sign of a future rest that Israel's king would bring about when he subdued their enemies. But they were not Pelagian moralists trying to pick themselves up by their bootstraps to get themselves into heaven. Yes, they had missed the meaning, not believing that Jesus was the true king who would bring rest to his people, by truly subduing their enemy, but they were, they were not thinking that this would get them into heaven. Think about what I said at the beginning. This is covenantal nationalism, the sin of idolatry, the worship of the nation, the worship of the tradition. Their rejection of Jesus then, in effect, means that they will never enter into God's rest. Because they have rejected Jesus as the true king who can defeat and will defeat the true enemy, the great power that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. The blind man, he is, in effect, saying, your seeing is your entering into a true Sabbath. Since you are obeying my words, believing in me as son of God, 9, 35, and 36. This healing and the others he does on Sabbath serve to define what true rest looks like, what the new creation looks like and will look like. And these will be brought in after he rests in the tomb on the Sabbath and rises on the first day of the week. Jesus defines Sabbath rest as he does healings by these signs. In him can be had genuine healing, and in him one can receive genuine sight. And to embrace him is to embrace the truth about all of that. In him can be had genuine and true rest from the deeper enemies of humans. Humans can now live genuinely human lives that are free. They can do it in him, in the sun. The self-appointed gatekeepers, the Pharisees, would not have it. Like the poor, demented souls trampling America's cities now because they can't kill the fruit of their wombs, the Pharisees grope about in darkness, refusing to see by the light of the world. And thus they put the newly healed man out of the synagogue, exactly what would be expected. They had become so fixated on killing Jesus, and neither Jesus nor his disciples will ever have any place among them. This is the point. This is the point about kicking him out of the, out of the synagogue. He sure would not be allowed to testify about Jesus, so they put him out. A word about this before we end. To be put out of the synagogue 
was not simply how it is in what would happen if you were put out of a church today. It's not that you could go down the road and find another one. You couldn't simply say, oh, they don't want me around. I'll go, I'll go fellowship with this congregation. It meant that his life and the lives of his relatives, notice the, notice the parents in this story, they're afraid to say anything as well because they would be utterly destroyed. They would be canceled. I'd say the Pharisees are just like the media, the media today. Really, something. The Pharisees exercised considerable control over the population through enforcement of Sabbaths, dietary laws, and other things. And the synagogue, this is the point, the synagogue served as the gate to community participation. If you were not in the synagogue and in right standing, you could not participate in the community. You would likely have to move, like really move. This is not something. This is not necessarily something that's wrong or bad in itself. But when truth and wisdom aren't rightly discerned and exercised, it can become corrupt. And Jesus here brings out its corruption, showing it to be compromised, because this is what Jesus does. He is, after all, the light. He brings things to light that were otherwise hidden, and thereby he creates two communities instead of one, giving new meaning to his words in Matthew 10, 34 and following. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. With Jesus, you get a sword. Not because he is a divider or it seeks to be divisive, but because his words are truth. And devotion to them will always have that effect. His kingdom is not from this world. It is for it, but it is not from it. And thus the world will not recognize it as the everlasting enduring kingdom and enduring kingdom that it is. I, for one, am grateful to be a part of a fellowship like this, but we must always realize that what happens when when the gospel comes in, when truth comes in, as much as we want it to unite, it often will have that dividing effect. But what will happen as a result is that there will be a community of new creation believers that are formed from it. And that is the true, true community that makes up that eternal kingdom of God.